Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Laura Love Harden, uh, who actually is a close friend. But the reason I'm having her on the podcast today is because of her uh, new memoir, uh, The Many Lives of Mama Love. And uh, while today she is CEO of her own literary agency, and previously she had been co-CEO of award-winning literary agency Idea Architects, she has a much more profound and deeper story, which starts with the troubled childhood and ultimately spiraling down into identity theft, addiction, and redemption. I hope you enjoy our podcast today. Thanks for listening. Well, Laura, it's great to have you with me. I did a little bit of an intro before uh, we began here, but uh, it's really an honor, and I and congratulations on your new book, uh, The Many Lives of Mama uh, Love. And uh, uh, just to recap a little bit, uh, it's really quite an extraordinary journey you've been on. I mean, now you're CEO of your own literary agency. You were co-CEO of... Uh, uh, Idea Architects, which is a very uh, prominent agency uh, in the field. And uh, what people, many people don't realize though, uh, like each and every one of us, uh, we have a backstory. Now, before I go forward, I have to also acknowledge, uh, I have to also acknowledge that uh, Laura and I actually have known each other for some time. And when she was at Idea Architects, uh, she um, she was actually instrumental in uh, the success of my own book. Uh, she uh, collaborated with me, maybe ghost wrote with me. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, the success of my book, uh, in great part, had to do the, with the contributions uh, from Laura. But this time around, she's telling her own story. And... Uh, um, like each and every one of us, uh, we all have a backstory that made us who we are today. And Laura, maybe you can um, tell us a little bit about your childhood. And I know uh, escape is a big word uh, uh, that is often used when you talk about your childhood. Maybe you can tell us about that. Thank you, Jim. It's really nice to be on this podcast with you. Um I thought you were going to say everybody has secrets, which is another part of my story, but everybody has a backstory. Um, I, um, you know, the first line of my book is reading was my first addiction. Um, but really what my first addiction was, uh, was escape. And I, I didn't have the greatest childhood. Um, it was marked with a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, addiction and violence and um, chaos. And so my earliest uh, way of coping with that was to escape into books, into my imagination. And so I I read desperately from a really early age and I kind of hid, hid in my room and hid into books. And I think that's that was, you know, my gateway drug to writing, you could say. 
Well, you know, though, as you go on with your story, it's sort of interesting because uh, uh, seemingly, though, you could merge yourself into or connect with various, uh, if you want to talk, call it popularity groups growing up, whether it was the athletes, whether it was the nerds. Uh, but oftentimes, that's not necessarily your true self, but it's uh, a, a mask you learn to carry to you know, get you through or be accepted for the thing you crave most, right? Uh, maybe you can tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, really, I, I, I learned to be a chameleon really early on and um, could adapt myself to whatever group I was with. And mostly it was because I, I tried to assimilate into other people's families, you know, like I, I needed to get to a family dinner somewhere. And so I learned to kind of be whoever um, anyone wanted or needed me to be. And, you know, the risk that goes along with that is that you, you don't end up becoming yourself or no, even knowing who that is. Right. And, you know, with my family, like my focus growing up was always on school and education. And, you know, I thought education meant inoculation. Like if I could, I could like out educate myself from a traumatic childhood or, uh, or, addiction or any of the things I was growing up around and that didn't prove to be the case but but yeah I think that early you know assimilation into other people's lives helped me in in collaborative writing certainly um so when you how did you if you will jump from the escape of reading uh or maybe it's not a how-to but uh what ha what happened to you? You obviously know how to do that, and whether it was uh, food, sex, or ultimately uh, heroin, uh, was it uh, to keep trying to escape and not feel the pain? Yeah, it's interesting. It was definitely a, a not feeling the pain, and for me, you know, I was a late bloomer into my addiction, really, and and part of it is is you know I I went to college and graduate school for, for writing. But then I, I stopped writing for a good 10 years. And writing was really like how I processed my emotions and made sense of the world. And I think when I stopped doing that in writing, I, I, I had to sort of mask it and cope with it another way. You know, I didn't grow up in a family where we had a language for emotions. Like, how is your day? How are you feeling? That was just not the vocabulary. So, um, I was, uh, I found myself in my first marriage. I had three children under the age of four and a half. Um, and my uh, husband was cheating on me. And I remember, you know, back then, you know, pain medication was, was how this started. Pain medication was kind of given out in like, uh, you know, sample packs. You go to the dentist, you, you know, childbirth, you know. And I remember, uh, you know, I had an earache or something and I took a, a, a pain pill and I, I was like, oh, I can pretend I'm happy with this. Like it, the way it worked in my brain, I was like, oh, everything's okay. And I can just pretend I'm happy and, you know, pretend that my marriage is okay and that things, you know, it just helped me pretend. And, and you know, I had a predisposition to getting addicted to things and, you know, that same feeling of, of, of false well-being that it gave me, and then it took two, then it took, you know, X number of until at the end I was taking 60 pain pills a day and fully fun and like functioning, you know, like functioning, like we could have a conversation. And I really thought like I needed that to, uh, 
you know, that I was, you know, smarter, funnier, brighter, more connected to people. You know, it was really like I thought it gave me a way to connect with people when it was actually doing the opposite. And then, you know, the nature of addiction, it progresses and, um, and I ended up smoking heroin. Uh, when all this was going on, uh, uh, had you already, uh, started, if you will, committing crime? Um, well, not, not in the way that the book, you know, not in the way that got me into jail, but like, you know, to get that many pain pills a day, you know, I don't know if it was late, you know, there's lots of shady doctors in Florida who would mail them to you, <laughs> which I'm sure wasn't legal and, you know. It was nothing I was prosecuted for, but, uh, so, but, you know, there were, there were ways to get them that weren't quite legal, but, um, um, it was really like, it was really the heroin that sort of blew up my life and, um, and used up all my money. And then I resorted to, to stealing from my friends and my neighbors. You know, it's, it's interesting because, um, you were saying how you were taking 60 Vicodin a day and you were functioning. Uh, and I think what so often we forget, though, is that when we're engaged in assuaging our own pain, uh, oftentimes we're not really seeing how others are suffering, either suffering because of our actions, but also uh, people who externally appear to be fine. Uh, yet they're uh, uh, suffering a great deal. And I think, you know, that's uh, I, this idea of fear of being judged uh, and this fear of actually showing your emotions so that people uh, can connect with you. Uh, maybe you can comment uh, on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so interesting to me. I was, just, I was just talking to someone this morning, a friend, and I was like, you know, about that time, like I was so afraid to be vulnerable or to like admit that I didn't have it all together, that I needed help. And I remember saying, God, I, I could never like go away for 30 days. Like that would be impossible to do and be away from my children and my life and, and go get help or go to rehab. You know, that was the story. And obviously, you know, obviously, uh, because I couldn't do that, couldn't imagine that something far worse happened. But, um, you know, I just, uh, was embarrassed by my emotions. Like, I don't know where I learned this, but emotion, like my own emotional world was embarrassing to me. It felt weak to me. And I just didn't have that. Like when you desperately want connection and someone to see you, but you're like, I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to say how I'm feeling or, sh or be that vulnerable. You know, I could do it in writing, but I couldn't, you know, I'm a much better writer than talker. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what I know to be true. But um, yeah, it's, it's scary being that vulnerable. Well, I think it's interesting because when you and I began working together, uh, I uh, was not aware of your background, but I'm sure that some of my own narratives sort of you could easily relate to. Yeah, I could definitely relate to it. And, you know, you weren't aware because I was keeping, you know, I was deathly afraid to tell anyone about my past and scared they would find out. Um, but I related, I definitely related to your childhood and your family stories and um it was easy for me to see the world through your childlike eyes you know your eyes of you as a child for sure no and i, I you know i think that's one of the things that makes you 
you know, a great writer is that you do have that ability to sort of connect with, get through to, um, in some ways, the, the burdens that all of us care, uh, uh, carry with us, this baggage that uh, has traumatized uh, so many of us and created this narrative of shame. Mm-hmm. But, but what I find fascinating, and I'd love your comment on this because I think it's the case with you, you don't appreciate, uh, I think, how much people care about you. Uh, and uh, you don't appreciate how forgiving people are if you're honest. Right, right. I mean, I definitely learned, you know, I took far too long to learn, like over a decade, um, you know, that no one was uh, had as little compassion for me as I had for myself. No one was as unforgiving of me or as judgmental or as critical than I was of myself. But, it, it you know, and it took me far too long to to learn that you know and you know when I was working with you and you're you're you know you're such a compassionate human and all this compassion and like I could understand it intellectually and I could have that for other people but like turning that inward I had no skill set for that at all well and again uh obviously uh that's one of the things uh I've spent a lot of time trying to do uh I won't say I'm 100% successful. I don't think anyone is. Uh, But that being said, uh, you know, for so many people uh, who are in the same position, you know, we find that we're so mean to ourselves uh, and so critical. But I think the challenge is when we're that mean to ourselves, uh, we have a tendency to look uh, at the world through a different lens. And maybe you could uh, comment on that. Yeah, I mean... I am always someone who is, you know, hypervigilant and on guard and like waiting, you know, you know, I don't know if it's my childhood or, you know, getting arrested and going to jail, but I'm always on this verge of like, what am I in trouble for? You know, like, am I, am I in trouble? When's the other shoe going to drop? Um, so that's something I had to do a lot of work to unlearn and, and to learn to like receive that love from people and that, uh, the nice things they say, you know, it's so much easier for me to like hang on to the bad things, right. Or the critical things. Um, and it's just, it's been a, a long decade of, of undoing that and trying to sort of receive, you know, like, like I think when I told you about my past or a little bit of my childhood, I mean, you, you were so, um, kind and understanding and compassionate, but you know, there's always that part in my head's like, but does he know the real story or it doesn't, you know, like it, there's just always, you know, I can't just be great sometimes, you know, so. Laura, you were, you know, telling me about this list of comments that you had received when this uh, 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 newspaper article came out uh, calling you the neighbor uh, from hell. Um, what happened to you or how did you feel when you read all of those comments and also uh, did you believe it was true? Um, I read them. I felt, I mean, I already felt, uh, you know, horrible about where I was. You know, I was in jail. I'd lost everything and everyone who made up who I was. My, you know, my children, my home, my work. Like I was, I was a number. I was an inmate number. And 
I was sentenced and, you know, there was a, I saw a cameraman in the courtroom and I was trying to like hide and like cover my face <laughs> and just like, um, you know, and there's an angry mob and it was, it was horrible. It was a horrible dark time. And, um, and so the article came out and I remember it was breakfast in jail and the guard, uh, hands me a newspaper. Now I didn't pay or subscribe to a newspaper. You have to, you know, like you have to be a little fancy in jail to get a newspaper delivered to you. And he hands it to me and I was like, oh, this is my paper. And he goes, oh, it is today. And there was my picture on the cover with that headline. And I was mortified and, you know, subject of a lot of jokes from the guard. And then people started calling me the neighbor from hell. The guards did. Uh, my jail nickname was Mama Love. So the, the women didn't call me that. But when, the, you know, I did, I just read the article, you know, it was, I skimmed it and then I put it away because there's a lot of things that weren't quite true in it, but some of it was true. And, and I didn't think anything of it. You know, I don't have a computer to get online in jail. But then when those comments came, I remember opening them. It was, a, you know, there's probably 300 uh, comments. So it was like a big stack of pages. And I just read each one. And, and there, so I felt, I felt, uh, hurt I felt ashamed I felt a I felt a lot of fear because there were um people saying on there like oh she didn't get a long enough sentence and then other people saying well there's there's ways to get people put back in jail when they get out or, or she'll get hers on the street you know like a lot of threats and I was I was scared and and I also just thinking like my children are going to read all this and my children are seeing this you know my my son Ty was in junior high and he said that newspaper was in every single classroom he went in that day you know and and I get news is news but I don't I just I don't think public humiliation is uh is a great first step towards rehabilitation for anybody but but mostly I was just um worried that my children were getting, you know, they were, some were teenagers and, you know, my youngest was very young, but they were teenagers and this was being seen by their friends and their parents' friends. And, and so I was ashamed about what people were writing, but mostly ashamed of like the collateral damage to my children. You know, it was like, it was already bad enough what happened getting arrested and, and, and now this just added to that. And it was, um, it was demoralizing. And I was like, you know, luckily I was in a little bit, um, a stronger place emotionally and mentally than I was when I first got to jail, when that article came, if it had happened, you know, when I was, when I was arrested, my son, my youngest son was almost four and he was the only one home at the time. My son, Caden, um, my other boys were at school. And so when the sheriffs came and, and the chaos was happening in the house, I, I begged them to let me call a family member, a friend to come get my son. And they called Child Protective Services instead, and and he got taken away. And um, I still get emotional about this. So when I was arrested and taken to the jail, I, the whole time I was crying and asking where my son was, and the sheriff's deputy turned to me and said, you'll never see him again, and you should not be anybody's mother. And so that moment was just like, I was like, okay, I'm just bad. You know, like I just felt this badness, and, and you know, a couple nights later, just really believe that I had failed at life and redemption is great for other people, but it's, it's not for me. And, um, I decided to end my life. So if that article had come at that time, I, I, I would have tried again, probably, honestly. Yeah. Well, uh, sorry, I didn't know. mean to get heavy on you. No, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to make my own self cry. 
Well, you, look, you've known me long enough. Uh, I'll, I'll cry at Lassie. Yeah, you'll cry uh, at anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, the, the sad statement about it is that, uh, you know, but for the grace of God go I, but the uh, lack of kindness or empathy or understanding I don't know, as an example, anyone who wishes to be addicted to narcotics or any type of drug. I don't know anyone, frankly, who—I don't know of anyone, frankly, who, uh, you know, wants to be poor uh, uh, or to, you know, do actions that cause harm either to themselves or others. But, you know, the fact of the matter is we're all human beings, and, you know, if you look at each of us uh, completely— uh, you know, there are good parts, there are bad parts. That uh, I, I think one of the challenges for so many people, though, is, you know, the shame that we all carry. Uh, you know, people try to push it away. And uh, you really uh, actually, it's not possible. And when you're weakest, when you're tired, when you're exhausted, you know, that shame or that, that part of you that you dislike about yourself comes out and bites you uh, versus, you know, recognizing that these things are part of every human being and we have to learn to deal with them and accept ourselves, the good and the bad. And and hopefully the reality is that the uh, good outweighs the bad, which certainly I, I think uh, is the case with you. Thank you. I wanted to make a comment, and, and, uh, and I think this will relate to uh, one of the projects you're involved with, is, you know, sadly, as we see with so many people, if you will, uh, uh, with so many people piling up on you uh, that um, uh, you recognize that prison is not a place of redemption. It's a place that takes away your dignity and causes you to lose hope. And maybe you can comment on that from obviously your own personal experience. Yeah. I mean, it is, I think, especially for women, which is what I can really speak to, like prisons weren't designed for women. They were built for men originally. And, you know, I, if you look at the, if you were to look at a list of like, what are the red flags for uh, domestic violence or like, you know, a, a partner is going to be controlling or abusive, it is exactly the list of what the power structure is in, in jail for women. It's men controlling who you have access to, controlling your food, controlling your phone calls, controlling your freedom. Um, so it was a really, you know, I was in jail with with girls, you know, so young, like barely older than my ch children in many ways, and, and many of them. And, um, and you know, so many of them were in jail for interpersonal relationships, you know, boyfriends who were drug dealers, you know, a lot of substance abuse, a lot of trauma. And it wasn't a very trauma informed place in that way. And maybe it's not supposed to be, it's supposed to be to, to punish you. But um, so it was, um, you know, it was not a hopeful place in that way. But it was, it was a hopeful place in that, like, what I found is, like, people will make a family wherever they are, right? And, and you know, when I was um, detoxing in jail, uh, like, women who I didn't know were not family, 
you don't think you're in a culture of caring, like really comforted me and saved me and like, you know, made hot water bottles uh, from the hot pot, you know, and like really um, helped me survive um, in jail and really saved me in a way when I was at my lowest. Um, and then, you know, I, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you know this, but I actually started ghostwriting in jail. Like that's where I, I honed my craft because I started writing letters for these women. You know, 80% of women in jail are mothers. Um, and I started writing, uh, I started writing letters for them to get passes to go to high school graduations or to a funeral or, you know, cause you get a little brief pass, um, and, or to break up with someone or seduce someone else. You know, I was just ghostwriting these letters and I was like, God, I'm, I'm like everything I wrote for them, you know, I'd write to their judges and they would get their pass or they'd get put in long-term treatment instead of prison. Um, but I'll tell you the one time I wrote a letter for myself to get a pass to my oldest son's high school graduation because I was in jail during my my oldest son's uh, high school graduation, um, it got declined. So I was like, oh, I'm better at writing for other people <laughs> than writing as me, right? Like I, that right. was like, uh, you know, later on that judge did tell me, uh, he said, you know, I, I, I denied your pass so you'd never miss another one. Uh, but, well, you know, well, that, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. No. <laughs> uh, it, uh, yeah. What What can you say to that? Yeah. But uh, uh, so tell me about the project that you've started uh, and uh, regarding women in prison. Yeah. So I um, co-founded a nonprofit with Cynthia Chase, who is uh, was a former mayor of Santa Cruz, um, and she lives up in Oakland. It's called the Gemma Project, um, and it is going to provide a 10-week uh, programming for women while they're in custody um, and, you know, quarterly and um, re-entry services when they get out because that's a whole other, that's a whole other issue that I had no idea. And I think a lot of people don't. Like I thought, okay, I'm going to like, you know, punish me for what I did and I will serve my sentence. I will pay restitution. I will do my probation and then I'll be done paying. And the reality is that you're often not done paying ever and generations can pay. And so, um, re-entry is a maze of bureaucracy and like illogical things with three counties wanting different things from you at the same time and not coordinating. And it's makes it really easy to go back to jail. Um, and you know, even this morning I woke up and it was publication, you know, I was having a dream and it was publication day and the police were at my house and they were going to arrest me. And I was like panicking, you know, I still have that like anxiety and fear, which is, you know, trauma response. Cause as much as it was, you know, okay, it wasn't okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't really like, I can say it was supportive of family, but it was, um, you know, it took me a long time to kind of acknowledge the trauma of my arrest and, and jail and all of that, because I was like, well, I caused that myself. So like, that's, you're not allowed to heal from trauma you cause yourself. You know, that was my misguided thinking. Um, but um, so anyway, the nonprofit's going to provide re those reentry services and support, which is really, you know, a lot of times recidivism is, is just you can't, you know, you have to have a job for probation, but then you have to drug test on two-hour notice for probation. And so you need a job where you can leave and you don't have child care because you have a record. Um, and there's no subsidies. So it is like recidivism is a lot of times lack of support rather than like ongoing criminal behavior. And 
Um, so we're doing that and then we're doing, we're trying to, um, replicate the Gemma program model. And I did the early version of the Gemma program of the original Gemma program when I was incarcerated. And so, um, so we're trying to replicate that across the country in the 3,116 jails, um, the majority of which women are in jail and, you know, it's kind of divided half and half between jail and prison. Um, but, you know, jails now with different laws, at least in California, uh, you can stay there for three years. You know, you can be sentenced for three years. Originally, they were meant to be a holding place. And so they're not really uh, geared up with programming and services and options like prisons are. Um, they're not meant for long-term stays. And so a lot of women are staying there long-term and suffering from it. So, And then we want to do some policy advocacy and change because the laws... Um, the laws are crazy and the barriers uh, that we create for people for life when they're, uh, you know, we make them, we punish them for life for whatever, you know, whoever they are at their worst, right? Um, you know, I could, I could write, uh, I could write a book with some Stanford professors like the Designing Your Life guys, but I can't homeschool my child because I have a criminal record. So... Well, and I, I think the sad thing is that uh, uh, you have a lot of misinformed politicians who, you know, on the one hand, you have the law and order set who, uh, you know, uh, they got what they deserve type of attitude and uh, uh, with very, very little empathy. It was uh, interesting during the uh, 2007 and 2008 meltdown Prior to this, you had, again, the same uh, group of people who said, you know, people uh, are leeches. They just want to be on welfare. They don't want to work. It's their own fault. Uh, we shouldn't give them anything. Uh, they're already getting too many benefits, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, many of these people suddenly uh, had no job, and uh, they suddenly get uh, a feeling of what it's really like for the average uh, person where you're struggling and, uh, you know, these problems go, uh, you know, so much deeper, uh, whether you're a male or a female, I mean, getting out after years in jail with zero support services and all these requirements, you have to be in these different places. How is that even possible that you can do that? Especially if you don't necessarily have connections, resources, money, and, you know, and then it just is another excuse to escape again because, you know, the reality is so uh, painful. Yeah. And, you know, and, and adding on to that list you gave is just the stigma and shame on top of it, which is, you know, it's hard to, you know, advocate for yourself when you're in that place. It's hard to um, talk about why you're qualified. Like, I think, you know, people who have been incarcerated might make the best employees in some situations. Like they know crime doesn't pay. They have something to prove. They just want to work hard. You know, I, I, the first job I got after I got out of jail and I was still on probation was working, you know, administering this grant that helped place uh, women with minor children in jobs in the community. And so I would go in and tell, you know, tell these empl potential employers and some are more, you know, open than others. Like, no, they, they have so much to lose. Like everything's on the line. Like they are, you, you become grateful for every, you become grateful for minimum wage. Trust me. You know, like I, you know, that is one thing in jail, like losing everything. Like I, sometimes I'll be like, Oh, I gotta like do the dishes. And I think, well, at least I'm doing the dishes. Like, 
not for 500 inmates, you know, like I'm doing my own dishes. And so like, it is amazing what a perspective shift jail was for me and a gratitude shift, um, in that way. And I think that, that, you know, people who have lost everything and been at rock bottom, like they just need a chance. They just need someone to believe in them and they blossom into that, you know? Well, uh, no, I think that's, um, Exactly right. I think we came up with a quote in my book that said everyone deserves a second chance. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, uh, Sometimes a third. Yes. Fourth. No. <laughs> yeah. All the chances. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, uh, <laughs> probably at some point it, it gets a little old, but <laughs> yeah. But you know, maybe for the first three or four. Yeah. But, maybe uh, three. Uh, let's just set, let's just go for three. Just to be safe. Uh, yeah, uh, but it, it is, it, you know, when somebody's had their dignity taken away, and I've spoken at many prisons, is, uh, you know, uh, my view is that um, prison is not filled with bad people. Prisons are filled with people who uh, didn't get the love and, and, and nourishment and care. And, uh, and it's so critical, especially in early life. And then, you know, to somehow think with the present incarceration uh, system that you're going to give them what they need to thrive as a human being, that's what's so sad. And yet you look at other countries like Norway as an example, you know, they're actually closing prisons because it's not an effective strategy. Right. Yeah. Um, So we should be like Norway. Well, uh, uh, yeah. there there are many other countries we sh- yeah. we, we we should strive to be like, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, or per you, you know it's interesting yeah. because there's this uh, narrative that somehow the old days were better, uh, but there were never any old days that these people uh, uh, remember from their imagination, and and that's uh, what's so sad. But yeah. I think all of us uh, should strive to be better than we were yesterday, or better human human beings. And I think uh, that is the challenge. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I remember two aspects from our uh, uh, <laughs> friendship, but one was uh, how you got into uh, stand-up comedy, which is sort of an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. How, how did that, though, ultimately relate to you being able to stand up and give a TEDx talk about your truth. Well, I uh, I started with you know I went to an improv comedy class, which was something I've always wanted to do. I was terrified. Like, what do you mean you just go in unprepared and you just say whatever's on the top of your head? You know, I was at a place where I was being so careful in my life, and and but I really wanted to try it, so I did. Um, and you know, improv is something where like you know it. Like being unscripted is scary if you're feeling vulnerable in the world, right? And so I did that and that led to stand-up comedy. And, the, and you know, it's hard to, to make friends when you have a criminal record too. Like if you think about it, like I'm going to make a new friend, but I'm not going to tell you I have 32 felonies right away because, you know, I'm scared to tell you, but then, you know, you're not really having a close friendship because you're, I was keeping, I was, I don't know why I'm saying you, I was keeping people at a distance. And so it was a very lonely place to be. Like I wanted connection with others, but I was very afraid of, you know, them rejecting me if they found out my past. So, um, I wrote a stand up routine about getting, um, a prison nickname, Mama Love. 
And I performed it, you know, just in this small group stand-up class and most of those improv people. And I did it in a safe way where it was just, you know, a funny comedy routine. And then afterwards, um, the women, the people I knew from improv came up and one of them said, is that true? You know, and then a bunch of them said, is that, is that, was any of that true? And it was this decision moment. Like, do I, and I just said, yes. And I told them, you know, and they were like, okay, cool. want to go to lunch. You know, like it was not like the big thing in my head that I thought it was, but I think that was the first step. Um, you know, I started getting a community and, you know, my, my shame just started healing in that community and that connection, people knowing like the real me and not, you know, running, screaming or whatever it was, you know? So it was, that was my community that I first built. And then, you know, at work telling, you know, one author at a time a little bit, engaging the reaction. Um, but it was really, you know, I got out of jail in 2009. It was 2019 when I got on that, um, the TEDx stage in Santa Cruz and, you know, that's a good decade where I just lived in fear of people Googling me and finding that neighbor from hell headline. You know, it was like my biggest fear. And, you know, I was always on alert for that. And, um, and, uh, so I got on the stage and I, and I told everyone the biggest thing I was afraid they were finding out. And the, the lightness and freedom I felt after that was better than any drug I've ever taken. Right. Like it was just like, oh, this feels really good. Like I just, you know, why didn't I do this sooner is really what I thought, you know, but, but it felt really good. And, but that stand up comedy, that community, it was really community is really what helped me to, to get up there and do that. No, I think that's, you know, so important. And again, uh, actually the recognition that, uh, uh, when you show your vulnerability, uh, people actually embrace you. They 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 don't shun you. Yeah. And, and you know, it's I gave a talk one time, and uh, as you know, I can shed a tear. My voice can tr uh, uh, crack. And I was telling a story, and this a woman came up to me afterwards, and she said to me, she said, "Oh my God, I so felt so bad for you up there. It must have been so embarrassing for you to say those things about yourself." And uh, and she said, but I can help you. And I go, oh, really? And she said, I'm a psychiatrist and a hypnotherapist. And if you come to me for three sessions, I'll get rid of all of that for you. <laughs> 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 Which, of course, is, you know, when you have that ability to be vulnerable, in some ways that becomes a superpower. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it liberates you. It gives you strength. And uh, uh, one of the things I want to go over and... Uh, um, is I think if you want to call it your first break uh, was when you were actually hired by Idea Architects. Um, and uh, what happened with that, but also uh, the reality that uh, somebody recognized your talent, recognized the pain, and uh, was willing to uh, accept you as you are and support you in your own redemption. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I answered a Craigslist ad to work part-time at a literary agency and I was very um, desperate and frustrated and sad and just feeling hopeless that I could, uh, you know, how was I going to like rebuild my life and make money and support my family? And um, so I answered this ad and <clears throat> the ad mentioned that the agency worked with Desmond Tutu. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, 
you know, I halfway thought it was a serial killer ad, you know, like I, I was like, really, is this a real thing? Um, so, and I was actually in line, um, to get appeal the decision to get food stamps and, and welfare, because if you have a criminal, a drug charge, you can't get any cash welfare, you know, uh, forever. So, um, but I had to feed my son. And so I, uh, got the call to come interview like in an hour and I was, you know, in this moment, do I stay and try and get some food or I just risk this, uh, you know, this potential job if it's real or not. Um, so I decided to go and interview and, you know, I had my background in writing and, uh, working for a, a small press publisher before. So on paper, I was looked very qualified for this, um, job and, um, uh, Idea Architects hired me, Doug Abrams hired me, and he didn't ask me about my background. He didn't ask, you know, I had a don't ask, don't tell policy, but I would have, I would have told him if he asked, but I wasn't going to volunteer it. And so it was really, I was there working a few weeks, you know, immediately working, uh, collaboratively writing a book and editing a tutu biography and feeling so good because I'm doing, I'm good adjacent, first of all, right? And, um, and I'm doing really good work in the world. And like, it felt so good. Like I can do, I can, I can do good things. And, and I remember I was sitting in his office. I didn't ha even have a desk yet. I was sitting in a chair, you know, and he was on a phone call, uh, with, um, we did the book, what colors your parachute. So they were talking to revising that book and talking to the authors about how now people Google their now people Google their employees. And so he, I guess while he was on that call, he, oh, I never, I didn't know that. I'll Google my new employee. And, uh, and I just, I remember like feeling the air change and I looked in his, his face, he was staring at me across the room and his face was white as a sheet, like, cause he saw that neighbor from hell and identity theft and all of these things. And so he, um, uh, you know, hung up the phone and, and said, you know, go home and come back tomorrow. I need to think about this. And I never, I'll call your references. You know, he had called the references. And, um, and so I left there and I was like, I'll never come back here. Like, I can't, I was so, I was so like sad and like, oh, I was, you know, like, but he had called me brilliant yesterday and now I'm just this thing, you know? And so I was like, I can't go back. There's no way I could face this and come back and talk to him. And so I had a long sleepless night, but I did go back and, and the first thing I said was like, I'm sorry, you know, if I put you in this position, I, it's important to me, you know, I didn't lie to you. And, um, and he decided to take a chance. He said, you know, I can't work with Desmond Tutu and not walk my talk. And, um, and I worked there for 12 years and, you know, started a five hour a week part-time assistant to co-CEO. And, you know, just one person believing in you, like, like I said earlier, like you rise to the occasion, you know, you like, you have no, like, I didn't know what I was capable of. And, um, I just needed one person to give me the opportunity to show, basically show myself what I was capable of. Well, and I think, uh, that's such an important statement because, um, you know, so many people sit there and say, well, I don't have resources. I don't have the ability. I don't have access. I don't have money. And that's why I don't do X, Y, or C. Uh, but everybody has the ability to change everyone or someone's life every day. And it's something that we should never forget. And, and whether it's giving somebody like you a chance, uh, saying hello to somebody who is lonely. Mm -hmm. 
it's really, really important. And, and for myself, I've had experience where people have come up to me who, to be honest, uh, sometimes I haven't even recognized. And they go, do you remember the time? <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> but they'll sit there uh, and they'll say, you know, uh, that conversation changed my life. And you go, oh, my God, just by that brief interaction, which, frankly, at that moment didn't seem it meant a whole lot, had the power to change somebody's life. And I have to also thank you uh, for you working with me because, you know, my book uh, has changed uh, literally tens of thousands of lives, if not more, of people who, you know, being able to share a narrative, and I think this will be your book too, to share a narrative that's powerful, that's honest, that shows your vulnerability, but also... um, uh, defines a path towards redemption and how that uh, changes you and it changes those around you. And uh, it empowers so many people. Uh, it, it's extraordinary. Mm, thank you. Yeah. I hope, I mean, you know, I, uh, it's coming up soon. So I think, you know, I think everybody knows someone who's struggling if they're not struggling themselves. And I do hope that, um, you know, you know, f- memoirs is the closest you can be in someone else's consciousness you're looking at the world through their eyes you're making their choices with them for good or bad you know uh i've gotten some feedback some people were you know yelling at me for some of the choices i made in my book um um but i do think like it 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 does hack empathy you know any any first person memoir you know and some people you know certain neighborhoods i'm a cautionary tale still like you know this is what happens when soccer moms go bad (laughs) and other people who are struggling who have shame who you know they might have not have the same experiences or they have a loved one is you know it inspires them and that's the hope for me no well and i think uh you do that very well so congratulations but thank you before we end, probably the most important thing, which I meant to ask you, which I forgot, was I'd like you to tell us about your time uh, running a pet cemetery. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> There's like one line in the book, but you know, I, I'm a very compassionate pet cemetery owner. Like I found, like you know, I'm mama love wherever I go. I could be working at a pet cemetery and helping you through grief. I could be in jail next to you. Um, and I have a lot of children, but I think, um, (laughs) yeah, that's a whole other book. Well, I want to just get some insights. First of all, how the hell do you become uh, involved with the Pet cemetery? And I guess probably I'm naive. I mean, certainly all of us have had pets who die, but I never thought of actually having a Pet cemetery and, if you will, support services for those who are grieving over their pets in an organized fashion. Yeah, well, it's actually, um, there's a whole extensive network of pet cemetery or- owners across the country. And, um, you know, if you, if, you, <laughs> if you think about it, every veterinary hospital has to have, uh, 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 be contracted with a, a pet cemetery or crematory, mine was both, um, to help loved ones you know, handled the remains of their babies, whichever way they choose. So, um, yeah, it's, a you know, actually I went to the International Association of Pet Cemetery Owners Convention and, um, it's, it's actually where I ended up, uh, well, no, I won't, t- well, it's where I can, it's where I can, 
my first son was conceived there. It was that exciting of an event. So, no. Uh, well, no. I'm not even going to go you might, with. You might even want to cut that out. But, but, but you know. <laughs> But yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, that's... I mean, it is. It is legit. It's a. It's a real business, and um, and there's a lot of um, yeah. Wow, I, you'd be I, surprised. Th- it really is. It really is. Could be a whole other book, honestly. Yeah. No, I, I find that fascinating. I actually had never thought of that. I mean, I can certainly understand it, uh, perhaps yeah. now. But uh, I mean, you have to be licensed to do that. Yeah, you have to be. You know, you have to have. A license for a crematorium, which I had, and uh, you know, pet cemetery, like any business license, you. Um, but you know, like in the county where I live, it's illegal to bury your your pet? dog, pet, oh. your pet in your yard. So they have to have somewhere. And most people have cremated, you know, with laser engraved boxes and you really? know, commemorate, yeah, caskets. Like we did as the the biggest pet funeral I ever did was for a a, a police canine that passed away, and there were. A hundred. I was out there weeping. It was a hundred police officers and canine dogs from around the state, and bagpipes and ceremony, and yeah. Wow, yeah, that's the whole thing. Well, uh, for our <laughs> listeners, uh, uh, <laughs> if you we've taken a turn. Yeah. yeah if you if you have a pet and are grieving, uh, <laughs> don't call me. I, that's not my business. Do not call me. Yeah, please please email Laura. <laughs> For uh, advice and direction in that regard. For, for, forget the book. We're, yeah, we're forget on pet the book. Sept- yeah. Forget the book. Forget incarcerated women. Uh, I will help you with your goldfish. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, well, perhaps on that note, uh, we, we can end our conversation. But... Uh, uh, Laura, I thank you so much for your time, and uh, you know it's really an honor to call you my friend, and also in, it's actually joyous to see uh, how far you've come, and uh, also being able to tell your story and get the uh, appropriate accolades for that. So again, thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. Thank you so much. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. <laughs>